so I do want to um, did want to take a second just to mention um, to thank each one of you as well for uh, welcoming us back to St. John's. We uh, were married here by David uh, 20 years ago, and uh, we moved out to the valley, and we'd been attending church out there for a while, so we've been felt very welcome coming back to St. John's. Um, I also wanted to just mention, I don't consider myself an expert in this field in any way. I, I have a keen interest in uh, church history and theology, uh, and I've read a lot on uh, the patristics, so <clears throat> I'm sure there are people in this room that know more than I do on some of these subjects, and we can have an interesting conversation at the end. So I'm not claiming any expertise, but what attracted me to John Chrysostom uh, are a few things, especially as we're, we're celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. <clears throat> John uh, is an important doctor in the church. Um, he uh, is venerated both in the Eastern Orthodox, Oriental Orthodox, uh, Roman Catholic, and even in the Anglican Communion uh, churches. Um, he is considered one of the great ecumenical teachers in the Eastern Orthodox, among the three being uh, Gregory the Great, um, or sorry, Basil the Great and Gregory the Theologian, also known as uh, Gregory Nazianzus. Um, John uh, Chrysostom was quoted um, most often, one of the, the patristics quoted most often by John Calvin, uh, next to Augustine. In fact, uh, he quoted uh, John Chrysostom frequently. Um, this is something that Calvin wrote, and I think it's key when we consider the whole framework of the, uh, the Reformation debate. The chief merit of our Chrysostom is this. He took great pains everywhere not to deviate in the slightest from the genuine plain meaning of Scripture and not to indulge in any license of twisting the straightforward sense of the words. And that was really what was going on in the time of the Reformation is, what's this text saying? What's the Bible teaching? And John Calvin was trying to recapture, as many of the reformers were, the plain meaning of Scripture and what it was saying to the early church fathers. Um, John was an excellent orator. He was a master of the English, or sorry, of the Greek language. Even modern connoisseurs of Greek literature have called him almost a pure atticist. Uh, that the only prose author of speech in his epoch uh, that he would, could stand comparison with Demosthenes. He was excellent at oration. He was born, um, let's see here, let's, uh, next slide here, I'm not doing that part. This is just to give you an idea. He was born in Antioch of Syria, not Antioch of Pisidia. This is a prominent city. It was founded by one of the generals of um, Alexander the Great, Seleucus uh, Nicator, and it's founded on the Orontes River. You'll see some pictures later. Um, it was a resort town. Um, actually, uh, you can switch it to the next slide. This is the Orontes, and there's this beautiful island which had a great church and even... Um, palatial residences on it. Um, so it was a prominent city. It was a metropolis. That, was, that afforded it certain prominence and um, certain uh, benefits in, in the uh, Oriental, um, or sorry, in the Roman Empire. Um, his parents were of Syrian uh, background. His father, Secundus, was a high-ranking military official. Um, with the name Secundus, he probably had Latin background, though. His mother had a, a Greek name, Anthusia, and she um, had uh, John when she was 20 years old. Now, John had an annoying habit when he wrote about his life to round numbers off. So when he was 18, he'd say he was 20. Okay? So for this reason, we don't even know exactly when he was born. They think it was probably about 349. And his mother was 20 and his dad was 40. That all works out very well. But shortly after John's birth, his father died. And so we have a 20-year-old woman who was left to raise John and his oldest sister, and she chose to be a widow. She did not choose to remarry. Uh, his mother was devout. She was a Christian. She saw the value of education, and she enrolled John in some of the greatest schools. <clears throat> now, John's education consisted, followed the classical model of the trivium, I don't know if people are familiar with that, but you start off with rote knowledge, grammar, basic arithmetic, 
um, learning uh, just the, the, the basic language. And then the next step would be logic. Now that you have to actually learn to take and synthesize different ideas and put them together. And then the highest was rhetoric. The Greek uh, world, the Roman world, saw a rhetorician as, uh, as, as someone to be lauded, someone who could voice what they believed and convince others of the truth of it. That's the value of rhetoric. He went to one of the greatest schools of rhetoric and studied under a pagan <coughs> named Libanius. <coughs> Now, Libanius is described as a convinced pagan devoted to traditional values, openly contemptuous of the new official religion. Although enjoying good relations with many who profess that, he was a friend and admirer of the apostate emperor Julian and reviewed the progress of Christianity with acute dismay. I'll come back to say a little bit more about Julian, but Libanius was an affable man in many ways. He wanted to get to know John. He saw, I think, John's talent and once when he was having a discussion with John about his background, John told him uh, that his mother was a widow. He inquired uh, what his mother's age was and when she was widowed. And when he replied that she was only 40 years old and that she'd been a widow for 20, um, he was astounded. And looking around in the public place where they were, he said, Great heavens, what remarkable women are to be found among the Christians. So it was very unusual that she'd remain unmarried at the age of 20, raising two children. <clears throat> there was also, just to give you another idea of how highly, uh, I think, Libanius regarded John, at his death, they were, he, he was, they were close to his death, they were asking him who would succeed him as chair of rhetoric in the school. And this is what he said, it ought to have been John had not the Christians stolen him from us. I want to give you a little bit of the background, both historical and theological. Maybe the next slide. Just giving you a, here an idea. The, 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 the geography is helpful a little bit because we're going to talk about his ascetic life as well. But these are the mountains that surround. And a lot of the monks and the hermits would go off, uh, John having been one of them. <coughs> next slide, please. Um, in the days of Diocletian, the Roman Empire was split because it had become so large it was unmanageable you know, for only uh, old Rome to govern. And so Emperor Diocletian split the empire and Byzantium was eventually set up as the, uh, which was renamed Constantinople in 330 by Constantine when he made, named that new Rome. So this is important to keep in mind. Also keep in mind that at that point, um, this really didn't have any prominence in the Christian world. There were three, uh, the three patriarchates, traditional patriarchates were considered to be Jerusalem, Alexandria, and Rome. Um, and Count Santinople only, only came in later uh, because it was really a small town on the Bosphorus at first. Um, another thing that we need to keep in mind is the, the theological debates that were going on at the time People, I think, are probably familiar with Arianism. The Arians denied the full divinity of Christ. They um, did not see him. This is why we, we recite the Nicene Creed, uh, the Nicene-Constantinople Creed. We say he is of one substance or same substance with the Father. Um, the saying, not one iota, I don't know if people know that, comes from that because the Greek word for same and the Greek word for similar is separated by one iota. Right, And the Arians said, oh, we can agree with the, he's of similar substance with the Father, but the same substance. And people who wanted to ingratiate themselves to the Arians wanted to go for that. But Athanasius, the great um, defender of orthodoxy in that uh, thing, denied that and said, not one iota <laughs> for the Arians. So this was the, um, the situation because that was important to realize because Constantinople, being a, a new city and a metropolis, became a place where a lot of people uh, who were actually Arian sympathizers lived. They held, these were the intelligentsia, because Arianism made a lot of logical sense. And John um, came into a milieu where that um, tension still existed. Um, <clears throat> when John was 14 years old, Julian the Apostate died. Now, Julian the Apostate, I told you I was going to come back to that. He was raised a Christian, but he apostatized and wanted to restore paganism in Rome. Um, 
he did many things to try and frustrate the Christians. He, he proclaimed religious liberty, but he didn't do it for lofty reasons. He actually loved to see Christians fighting amongst each other. So he invited all the exiles back, whether you're a heretic or, you know, ultra-Orthodox, just come on back, and he wanted to watch them all kind of fight. Um, he also developed a plan to rebuild the uh, temple in Jerusalem. Again, not because he particularly loved the Jews, but because he actually thought that by so doing, he could help to disprove the divinity of Jesus. Because Jesus said, this will be destroyed. And the Christians would point to that and say, Jesus is a prophet. And that really did affect the pagan mind, because they'd say, man, this guy's wielding some power. So Julian goes off to battle, he gets killed, and the Christians celebrated with exultant shouts of, God and his Christ have triumphed. So this is the, the, the early life of John as he's growing up. He had a best friend named Basil, um, and he, was seeming, he seemed to be training initially for something maybe in public service, a high office. Um, Palladius, who is uh, one of the main biographers of John, um, says that at one point, becoming intellectually a full-grown man, John fell in love with sacred studies. Um, he and Basil were very uh, devout and good friends, and they wanted to embrace the life of solitaries and true philosophy together. So they hatched the plan to move and live, cohabitate um, away from their parents. But his mother was shocked at this. She said, John, will you make me a widow a second time? And so she convinced him to stay. While he stayed, he, became, he came under the influence of Miletios, uh, who was... Uh, the, the Bishop of Antioch. Switch the slide, please. Oh, this is just another map to give you an idea of Constantinople and Chalcedon. There's Nicaea, Nicomedia. Uh, next slide, please. Now it's Turkey. Yeah. And this is Constantinople. Um, so Miletios, um, I thought I had a picture of him, actually, so I don't know if it came through or not, or maybe the order is, but uh, I think this one's Miletios. Um, he was a, um, a, uh, the bishop of Antioch, okay? So John is still in Antioch at this time. Miletios is uh, a, a teacher um, in the church, and um, John eventually came to be baptized by him. Now, again, people, just to give you a little church background, back then, they saw baptism as kind of a, a one-off, get-out-of-jail-free card. Once you were baptized, you were cleansed and perfect. And so people like Constantine deferred their baptism until their deathbed because it's like, hey, I'm in, right? I got my baptism. But if you got baptized and then you sinned after that, it was a, a difficult situation for you. So John didn't get baptized as a child, even though he was raised in a Christian household, and that was common. This wasn't any unfaithfulness on the part of his mother. But children raised in Christian households were considered catechumens already. They didn't have to go through the same um, uh, rites, so to speak, as a pagan who was coming to the faith would have to do. So he was baptized by Miletios, and then Palladios wrote, from that hour of his baptism, John ever swore or ever made others take oaths, ever spoke evil of anyone or told lies or cursed or tolerated frivolous talk. So gives you an idea of the, the rigorousness of the man. Now, there's probably some hagiography here. Um, <clears throat> John eventually came to study under Diodor and Carterios, who were in charge of an ascetic school. Yeah. This is... Um, Oh, wait a minute, that might be Miletios. Go this is Diodor, I think. No, this is Flavian. Just, just, that's fine. Uh, Diodor um, was uh, basically the man that gave John his uh, um, love for scripture. Diodor led the school of Antioch, which was a very different uh, school than Alexandria. Alexandria preferred the allegorical method of interpreting scripture. Everything was typological. Uh, things had mystical meanings, spiritual meanings. The plain meaning of the text was not that important to them. They would take it into consideration, but in the, uh, the, um, the school of Diodor, he said, no, 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 it's the historical context, the plain meaning of the text that matters most. And this obviously impressed uh, 
John. Diodore eventually became actually Bishop of Tarsus. Um, <clears throat> he was, when he was going to the school, it wasn't a monastery per se, but it was rather a close-knit fellowship of dedicated Christians, um, staying in separate homes but living together. Um, or, or sorry, living and, and um, in the world, but they accepted self-imposed rules of rigorous self-denial. Um, and uh, they, had, um, they would pray, they would study the Bible, they would sing and worship together. <clears throat> John began to write short essays during this time, um, one of them known as a king and a monk compared, where he argued that a monk who wholly surrenders to God is, is, is a true king. Uh, and this is something that, you know, you have to think again about how new this religion was to the pagan world um, and how uh, radical that would have been. Um, but he never really broke fully free of his um, philosophical underpinnings. And this is something that we all need to appreciate, uh, and it's true of us as well, right, is that the milieu in which he grew up, he, he tended to sort of argue more in, in stoic terms at times with a Christian uh, way about it. Um, <clears throat> after serving Miletios for three years, he was then appointed an official reader in the church. Now, this is the lowest form of clergy. It was just below deacon. Okay, and um, they weren't allowed to preach. He would have uh, he would read the Old Testament lesson and epistle at mass, um, but and and then um, aid in in the the other tasks of the clergy. He was still living at home at this time, and then he and his friend Basil received word that frightened them that they were both going to be uh, ordained priests under duress, and this was actually not uncommon back then. Rather, and it's an interesting way, they, they would come and they would basically say, that's it, we're making you a priest. And they would practically force it upon you. Um, this terrified John, and Basil and John uh, came up with a plan that they would both basically do what the other one did. So if Basil, if they got Basil, then John would say yes, and if Basil said no, then John would say no. But John had no intention of becoming a priest at that time. So he used a ruse, they got Basil, John took off. <laughs> um, this, of course, hurt Basil, but uh, John felt that he was utterly unworthy at that time. He realized that in his heart he was still struggling with vicious passions. And so he uh, then fled, um, and um, it was only in a closeted life that he, uh, and it, avoidance from certain things like uh, frequent meetings with women prevented from, um, and, and the matters of the world that he would be able to prepare himself for the priesthood, so to speak, or that, shall we say that God would prepare him for the priesthood because he couldn't accept it at that time. So he retreated to Mount Silipios, and no, 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 don't, don't, because if you go back, maybe go back to that um, slide of um, Antioch where the mountains were, but he would have re retreated to one of these mountains. Go back one more, maybe. One more. <laughs> anyway, so yes, these mountains here were where these hermit communities uh, lived. Now, I want you to understand there were two different types here. Okay, there were there were monks that kind of lived in connection with each other, and then there were complete solitary hermits, like they were the, you know, the Navy SEALs, if you will, of um, this type of lifestyle. Okay, so. Um, John lived for four years in one of these communities. They lived in these little huts. They were very basic. Some of them had no roofs. They would just have straw. They, would, they, they followed the rule of silence, um, except for worship. And they would get together and worship four times a day. Uh, between those times, they were expected to be meditating on scripture, praying, or doing menial work. And that could be anything from planting, um, harvesting, weeding baskets, and then they would sell uh, some of the things that they made and use the profit to help the poor. Um, John fretted when he got there. He said, I couldn't stop fussing and trying to discover where I'd get my supply of necessary items, whether I'd be able to eat fresh bread each day, and whether I'd be obliged to use the same oil for both my lamp and my food, whether I'd have a wretched diet of lentils forced on me and be assigned some back-breaking task. <laughs> Being ordered, for example, to dig or carry logs or water or perform all sorts of services of that kind. In a word, my great worry was about the time that would be allowed for me to, for spiritual recreation. So what he was saying is, it's not, it, he, 
although he was used to the amenities, he was also saying, I wanted to spend more time in the Word. But he did this for four years to his credit. And during this period of time, um, he felt like he achieved the, uh, um, shall we say, the, the conquest of the flesh that he um, was seeking for. But it still wasn't quite good enough. So then he went and joined the Navy SEALs. <laughs> so four years with these guys, now two more years alone. And these two years were um, interesting and also um, had lasting effects on him because during those two years, he never laid down. They would, they would avoid sleep, and they would do, it was called stasis, and they would actually stand all the time. And he memorized the New Testament and the Old Testament during this time. So he became, um, obviously, a great student, a master of the scriptures, but at the same time, he damaged his body. He was incredibly emaciated. Um, he, his kidneys weren't functioning properly, and for the rest of his life, he suffered from rushes of blood to the head, stomach trouble, insomnia. He couldn't keep himself warm, probably had no um, insulation to his body. This, again, I think is coming from one of the, maybe the, the ways that they viewed the world. They saw, in, in a sense, joy as a zero-sum game. If you're, if you're too joyful here, you're taking something away from heaven, right? Um, Paul said he was content in little and in much, and I don't know if John was content with much or knew how to use much. Um, so for the rest of his life, he, he bore this in his body, but he also shunned um, the riches of the world. And with, with good effect, but it also had problems uh, because he's alienating people, and we'll come back to that. Um, some people postulate that he became disillusioned with um, monastic life, and that caused him to return to Antioch, but that doesn't really jive, I think, because he wrote and always spoke highly of monks, and he even used, once he became ordained, used them in regular ministry. Um, it was more likely that he realized he was going to die if he stayed up there. <laughs> and he also, I think, God probably impressed upon him, look, you've got this wonderful wealth of knowledge now of the Bible. Go, and, go forth and, and preach. And he was a gifted orator, so God wanted to use him. So he returned to Antioch. And when he got there, there was political shiftings going on. Um, the uh, uh, Arianizing Emperor Valens died, and then his younger... Uh, nephew in the West, Gra Gratia, was actually Orthodox, and he called Theodosius uh, out of retirement, he was a, a, a general, to be the new emperor of the East. So Theodosius comes and takes um, office, and, and John uh, returns to um, uh, Antioch, and shortly after that, Miletios died. Now, uh, not to go into all of it, but there was a lot of tension, uh, even among the Orthodox. There were some super rigorous Orthodox people that didn't want to associate with people like even Miletios because they thought that they were a little bit too, they, weren't, they were compromised a bit too much with these Arians. Um, and uh, one of those names was Apollonus, and he um, was the favorite to become bishop, but instead Flavian was installed as bishop. So we can skip ahead. That's this is Flavian, I think. Yes, Flavian. Okay, so Flavian becomes bishop. Rome wasn't happy with this, by the way. They refused to recognize Flavian initially. Um, and so in a sense, Antioch as a city was in schism. Um, and um, John was then um, ordained deacon. Uh, when, he, when he first returned. Um, deacons would help in the instruction of catechumens. They would also help in the baptismal service. And they did a lot of pastoral uh, work, like helping out with the poor, um, the sick, mentally deranged. They would visit the widows, the orphans. And so John put his hand to working among the people and had a heart for the poor. Five years after that, Flavian ordained him as priest in 386. Now, his first sermon was interesting because John, I think, was a, a, a truly humble man. Um, he was, although a gifted orator, he, he writes that he was just a stripling and that he was panic-stricken uh, and quite inexperienced in public speaking and that he should have such a height of authority put upon him. 
But he took it as an opportunity to then turn to Flavian and extol the virtues of his bishop. He had great regard for him. And uh, by this neat transition, he switched uh, and um, he made a fulsome eulogy of Flavian. Uh, with ex extravagant hyperbole, he extolled the bishop's disdain for high living and riches, his absolute self-mastery, his austerities, his vigilant care for the church, his virtues, uh, which no human voice but only one inspired by the spirit could express. He said that the loss of Meletios had been um, difficult, but Flavian seemed like Meletios restored. John concluded he begged the people to pray for Flavian, our father, our master, our shepherd, and our pilot, and for himself, once solitary but now dragged um, into the limelight with this formidable crushing yoke placed on his shoulders. So he didn't have, um, I, I, he didn't come across as an arrogant man in his preaching, even though he um, was very gifted in that area. His sermons were practical, they were exegetical. He would go through entire books of the Bible. Um, he preached, for example, 67 homilies expounding Genesis. Just he wanted to take his congregation through every book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. His eloquence was so great that the audience often burst out into applause. And he would have to chide them. But then he would chide them with such eloquence that they would <laughs> applaud again. <laughs> He, he didn't pull punches. John, and, and he was the kind of man that I think he, in a sense, earned it with his life. You couldn't, you couldn't find fault in him. Um, when somebody, uh, there was problems with drunkenness, of course, in the city, and, he, and some people said, stay away from wine, they wanted prohibition. But he, he preached a sermon on 1 Timothy 5.22, drink a little wine for your stomach's sake, and then he criticized, our simpler brothers is what he called them. <laughs> Calling for prohibition, pointed out that wine. He pointed out that wine was God's creation, and that the sin lay in the immoderate indulgence. He called on Christians who encountered someone blaspheming against God, because he saw this as okay. If you're calling wine evil and God made it, then you're calling God evil. Um, and he said, then rebuke them sharply, and if and if necessary, strike them in the face. <laughs> Make your fist holy by the blow. <laughs> This is not John because he indulged, overindulged in wine himself. He didn't, but he saw the theology, right? The theological implications this had, that something that was created by God can be called evil. That was an affront to God himself, and he stood up for God's honor. Uh, wine's good too, but... Um, something... Th the next thing that happened was very pivotal, I think, in John's uh, career. Um, go ahead, one here. Uh, this is Theodosius. Um... The, he preached a series of sermons called Homilies on the Statues. What happened was, in Antioch, this was in 387, um, a tax was uh, to be levied against uh, the citizens. And it was deemed exorbitant. The people uh, were dismayed by this, and then a riot broke out. And during that riot, images of and statues of the emperor were cast down and defaced. And that was viewed as a direct affront to the emperor. That was treason. And this put the entire city under ban, in a sense. They lost their status as a metropolis. It was given to Laodicea. They lost the free distribution of bread to the poor. People were rounded up and executed. Um, it was kind of like Nineveh. Everyone was going around in sackcloth and ashes, and, and, and they were waiting for the emperor to decide what he was going to do. And Theodosius, although a Christian, and he was... Keep in mind, three years later, when an uprising arose in, in Thessalonica, he ordered thousands killed. So he, he wouldn't hesitate to use uh, his power if he, if he so decided. This was a time of great consternation. The, 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 the city was as though dead. No one was going out. Um, people were being dragged away. The monks actually came down from the mountains to console the people. And Flavian went to Constantinople to beg for mercy. So you've got your bishop's gone. Who's the big guy at home? Well, it's John, right? And he starts preaching sermons to comfort the people uh, of what to you know, expect. But what's interesting is they never, and I think that this is hard for us, they never presumed upon the grace of Theodosius, just as we should not presume upon the grace of, grace of God. And they never belittled the wrong that was done. They actually confessed that this was heinous and worthy of whatever we get, so to speak. Um, Flavian went um, and 
when he came to Theodosius, Theodosius said to Flavian, and this is interesting, I'm going to quote some of this here because I think it's important um, and helpful, but he says this to Flavian. Flavian was in tears when he sees Theodosius. And Theodosius says to him, and he wasn't saying this bombastically, he says, was it fair that I should receive such a reward as this and from what I have done for them? Because he showed favor to Antioch, right? What injustice have I done that I could avenge myself, avenge themselves on me in this way? What accusation, great or small, could they bring against me, and not only against me, but also against those who are now dead? <clears throat> he says, I have preferred Antioch even before the city in which I was born, and has always been my great desire to visit that city, and that I have made a public declaration of my desire. So he had an affection for Antioch, and he's going, how do I deserve this? Help me to understand this, Flavian. At this, Flavian groans deeply and weeps even more. <laughs> His, the, the yoke has suddenly become heavier on him. Theodosius is, is, is saying, help me to get this. And then he, he opens by saying, Your Majesty, we fully admit the love which you have shown our city. Um, but then he goes on to impress upon him. Think of the impression that will be left in the minds of posterity if they hear that when so great a city was liable to punishment and vengeance and all were in terror. And among the generals and rulers and judges, there was not a single one who dared to lift up his voice on behalf of those wretched criminals. One single old man, entrusted with the authority of the priesthood, came forward, and just by his presence, and by the mere fact of meeting with him, changed the mind of the emperor, and that what the emperor was unwilling to grant to any other of his subjects, he accorded to this one old man out of respect for the laws of God. And I, as an ambassador, not only from the citizens of Antioch, but also from the common lord of all angels, and messengers to remind your grace and clemency that if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive your trespasses. So I bid you remember that day on which you shall have to give an account for all that we have done. This is these are bold words. He's using the word of God, and he's coming with humility, right? I urge you to imitate your Lord and Master, who, though we daily treat him so ill, never ceases to pour down upon us his own gracious gifts. At this, the emperor was holding back his own tears. He's choked. And I love how the emperor responds. He says, It is nothing so very great or wonderful if we give up our anger against men who have so insolently done us wrong, since they are men and we too are men. Seeing that the Lord of the whole universe, when he came down to earth, was made a slave for our sakes and was crucified by those on whom he had showered such great benefits, prayed to his father for those who crucified him, saying, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Is it then anything strange or remarkable if we forgive our fellow servants? What an amazing piece. The bishop was then eager to stay in uh, Constantinople, because this was at the time of Lent, by the way. I forgot to mention that. To stay in, in Constantinople for Easter, but the emperor would have none of it. He said, you know what? No, no, no. It's not good that we sit here and celebrate Easter together as much as I would want to do that, but Antioch's going to be in mourning unless you get word to them. I, I want you to make haste and go there now. Tell them I've forgiven them and let them celebrate Easter as well. So Flavian goes off. He says, um, Be of good cheer, for once they see the helmsman, they will remember the cruel storm no more. They will erase from their minds every memory of the sorrows that are past. So keep in, remember, John is still at home now, right? And he's preaching these things. And then when he comes to realize what's happened, he preaches a sermon. And he says, Is it possible to imagine a more gentle disposition than that of this man, meaning Theodosius? From now on, let the pagans be ashamed. So he's using this now as, a, um, as an evangelistic message because people were flocking to the churches. Even the pagans were afraid and going, maybe this will work <laughs> because we're, we're going to be executed. Um, and he called upon them to um, take heed um, at the power of the gospel and let the, leave the way of error which had come down um, from their fathers. And he says, did ever any gentle father take such trouble about his children and rebellious and insolent children at that? Think about the attitude we have toward our sin, right? We tend to minimize it to God and to each other, don't we? Right? We presume upon grace. Um, Flavian told it how it was, admitted their fault, and he won the emperor. <clears throat> I'm going to skip a little ahead here. I don't know how much time we've got here. Um, 
John continued in the priesthood in Antioch for about um, 10 years. In October 397, he received an urgent summons from the governor of Antioch to present himself immediately to the martyr's gate. And then they drove him 25 kilometers away, not telling him anything. And they said, oh, by the way, you're going to be made bishop of Constantinople. (laughs) They did it this way because they probably feared John would take off thinking he's not worthy of that, or that the people would riot because they loved him and they were, oh my goodness, they're taking our John away. But in the end, he acquiesced. Um, and this is important to remember that there was, a, there was always political wrangling going on. Um, the patriarch of Alexandria, who was a prominent patriarch, as I mentioned earlier, um, wanted his own man in there and didn't get it. Uh, and this... Um, shall we say, clash that John now had with Theophilus would have greater ramifications down the road. Um, While he was a bishop, he didn't live as other bishops. He had a very high standard of morality. Um, Maybe you can skip ahead the next slide. This is um, Arcadius. Arcadius and Eudoxia are the... uh, Arcadius is the uh, uh, emperor and Eudoxia is his wife. Um, so he, he wanted to have a strict, um, strictly orthodox bishop in place to help clean up the Aryan mess that was going on in Constantinople, and this is what John did, in addition to living this, this life of good example. He had, uh, he, he continued to live in austerity. He would not eat with other people. He ate simple meals. He would just eat, you know, soup and bread. Um, and this kind of was odd, but it also offended people. And I think this is another weakness in maybe John's understanding, because one thing we should be doing is showing hospitality. But John wouldn't do that. He saw this as extravagance. So when people came to visit dignitaries and stuff, he was being, he'd be off somewhere eating alone, and he would never have uh, a, a big gathering with these people. Um, I think that was a, a weakness in his understanding. But... Um, <clears throat> He also had a very strong heart for the needy. Um, He preached against the extravagance of the rich and the neglect of the poor. Um, I was going to show you guys a book. I can pull it out at the end that that, uh, I owe a lot of this talk to by Kelly. And he says this. um, John saw the prominence of the church or the centrality of the church as important in helping the poor. Kelly writes, um, what is interesting to modern students is that he always envisaged the voluntary charity of individuals as being the agent of such a redistribution, it never occurred to him, to, um, though he is often described as almost a socialist, that the central government should have any responsibility for it. And this is something I think we need to recapture. When the church abdicates her authority or her ministry of, to the poor, to the government, then we lose our um, gospel witness as well. And John would never have envisioned, oh, wait a minute, the government actually starts to do this? No. He built hospitals, he built poor houses, they took care of the widows and the poor. <clears throat> Skipping ahead, um, these are the patriarchates. Now, as I said to you, John, um, this is Constantinople, he's from uh, Antioch. John did much to build up the the see of Constantinople. Uh, Byzantium was not really mentioned in the Bible. It didn't have a lot of claim to fame ecclesiastically. Uh, It's believed that Andrew, Peter's brother, brought the gospel there. Um, But um, one of the ways in which they would do this is by bringing in relics. Okay, so you had more relics than this built you up. Um, And I wanted to quote about something because... Empress Eudoxia gets a bad rap, and a lot of it I think she does deserve, but she was also a devout woman, and she participated in one of these um, uh, processions as just a regular person, Uh, and he lauded her for that. He said said that she would be called, uh, in an extended climax, he apostrophized Eudoxia personally, assuring her that not only the present but all future generations would proclaim her blessed for her unparalleled devotion to the holy martyrs and for the humility with which, casting aside all pomp and circumstance and mingling on equal terms with the common people, she had accompanied them to their shrine. So Eudoxia was a mixed bag like we all are. Right? A lot of people make her out to be this villainous. Um, John and her had a, a, a falling out. They had a couple, actually. At one point, um, there was... A, a, 
this was common practice. If someone was found guilty of treason, then not only were they banished or perhaps executed, but their entire property, their family to be thrown out, was taken away from them. Well, this widow, uh, effective widow, because the husband apparently was wrongly accused and uh, convicted of his crime, lost everything except for a small vineyard, which Eudoxia liked, and she appropriated that as well. And John preached about Jezebel, and everyone recognized what he was talking about. Um, I don't know if you can click the next slide there. This is a famous painting of John. There's Eudoxia calling her Jezebel uh, for taking this poor widow's vineyard. I, I, I'm letting you know this, be, and there are other examples of this as well, where John um, was not necessarily delicate in how he approached things. He wasn't a good politician, and so he would be very uncompromising in these things. And this had ramifications on him. Another significant event that happened was the, the monks came to Egypt, from, from Egypt, and this is where Theodosius comes back in, or sorry, Theophilus comes back in. Theophilus um, had excommunicated these monks, um, charging them with originism, and I won't go into that, we don't have the time, but he charged them with originism, and they were excommunicated, but they felt that they were wrongly accused, but what do you do? So they went all the way from Alexandria, go back one more slide. You know, Alexandria way down here, these guys make their way all the way to here. And they're trying to appeal to John to get to, to intervene and to uh, the emperor and the empress. Uh, and they make their case, um, but Theophilus is not happy. Uh, he sees this as an infringement. John prior to this had gone through, Asia, go back to the map, gone through Asia, he was invited to solve some problems in Ephesus, which was a new thing for the, the, the bishop of Constantinople to oversee Ephesus. But he was invited, and he went, and he actually deposed some bishops for simony, and uh, did some various things, and he made some enemies. Um, and he did it indelicately. Um, so, when these monks came appealing to John, Theophilus said, wait a minute, this is a local matter, who are you to butt into my business? Um, and John, however, was not trying to butt into his business. He wrote a very winsome letter, just trying, kind of like, uh, it made me think of Philemon, right? He says, um, with a personal letter to the patriarch, he couched in warm and conciliatory terms, begging Theophilus to receive the monks back into communion with him. But he did not commune them. Rumor got back to Alexandria that he did. So that infuriated Theophilus all the more. And Theophilus was a scheming, ambitious man. Remember, he didn't get his man in to Constantinople, and John was the usurper, so to speak. So he hated John all the more now because of this, and he set out to plot against him. Meanwhile, these monks made their case to the emperor and the empress, and they called Theophilus to come to the capital and either exonerate these men or try them openly because the charges didn't seem to stick. Theophilus got there a year later. It was over a year. He took the long, circuitous land route as opposed to the more direct sea route to get there. And he did it very deliberately. He took a long time to leave. And when he left, he went along the way and he spread rumors that he was on his way to Constantinople to try John. And he drummed up all kinds of false accusations against anybody who had any grievance against John. As he's going through Asia, he found all kinds of people. He went and deposed a bunch of bishops and stuff. Yes, John did this, John did that. So he's getting this dossier together and all of these witnesses to come. And he's got all the dirt. And along the way, he's collected this entourage of bishops. And they arrived with some 36 bishops, 29 of whom were from Egypt. <laughs> they were his own guys. And they arrived. Um, you can... Skip ahead, one more. That's Theophilus. And by the way, go back. That's the only picture of Theophilus I could find. I don't think they actually see him very often. <laughs> but go ahead. Um, this is Origen. Go ahead. Yeah, here we are. So he comes up here, and he stops in Chalcedon right across. He, he doesn't come across. Um, and John refuses to stand as a judge over Theophilus. And John starts to write to Innocent of Rome. At this point, the, Rome, the Bishop of Rome was not viewed as the, the, the final Pope of authority. It was more for moral support. He was starting to write to the West. He's going, I'm getting into hot water here. What do I do? He's asking for advice. 
he writes to he writes this to Pope Innocent. Um, and whereas I was of the laws of our fathers, respecting and honoring this man, meaning Theophilus, um, having moreover in my hands a letter of his, which demonstrated that judicial cases may not be lawfully tried outside the territory of their origin. In other words, he would have had to have gone down to Alexandria. Um, but that matters of affecting each province should probably be settled within that province. I refused to act as his judge. Indeed, I rejected their proposal with the utmost vehemence. So <clears throat> this uh, irritated the court, um, the, the imperial court. They wanted this problem resolved. You've got all these refugees coming in from Egypt saying they won't commune us, help us, um, and John won't stand uh, as judge and try and resolve the issue. <coughs> Theophilus took opportunity here and he says, okay, well, <coughs> if John's not going to judge me, I'll judge him. So he sends this dossier over to Arcadius and says, look at all the stuff that I've drummed up on John. Arcadius is like, whoa, Okay, well, if this is all true, let's reverse things. And so now John was suddenly on trial. And he set up uh, a trial uh, across near, just on the outskirts of Chalcedon called the Oak. And they tried John on numerous charges, none of which were fully substantiated. Things ranging from uh, violence and cruelty, uh, unjustly suspending or deposing clergy, inappropriate financial administration, liturgical omissions and improprieties, all kinds of things. They even tried to accuse him of, of um, this is funny, um, refusing to eat with others so that he could eat on his own gluttonously. <laughs> that was what it was all about. He was, he was just picking out. <laughs> you have soup and buns, I've got, I've got some prime rib in the back. Um, it didn't go well for John. John refused to participate, he, uh, and they brought the charges, and in the end, the Arcadius, the emperor, acquiesced and agreed to um, banish John. John was then taken, he didn't get far. Go ahead one slide, I think. Um, well, we'll just leave it there. John didn't, uh, go back one, sorry. John didn't get far. Um, he, he, he went across the Bosphorus and then, oops. He went across the Bosphorus and was, was sitting somewhere around here near Nicomedia. Uh, or sorry, Nicomedia is here, not on that map. Um, and a, it, there was a huge public uprising, riots, violence. But what I think changed the, um, the wind for him at that point was that there was a disaster that happened, and some authors report it as a, uh, an earthquake, but more likely what happened is the empress herself had a miscarriage. And she had a falling out with John, remember, with, about the whole vineyard. That was sort of patched up, but there were these tensions and so she then begged her husband to have John reinstated. She sent an agonizing note to John, protesting before God that she had no part in the plot which these wicked, depraved people had concocted against him. And she deeply revered him as the priest who had baptized her children. And incidentally, he had baptized Theodosius II, her only son, uh, the future emperor. So John then returned to, in triumph to Constantinople. Done. Done deal, right? No. The problem was that he was convicted by a synod, and in order to get that overturned, he needed another synod. So he came back, but he refused to go and resume his Episcopal duties until that was overturned, because he was in this kind of legal limbo. The emperor calls you back, but the church hasn't rescinded the order. And so Theodosius sends out a bunch of letters, sorry, Arcadius sends out a bunch of letters, and he's like, okay, we got to get another synod together right now, pronto, and get this overturned. Well, he got a bunch of bishops together, but it was kind of more of an informal gathering, and they annulled the verdict of the previous one, but it wasn't an official synod, according to canon law. And so John kind of acquiesced to this because it seemed like the political pressure was on him, and people were actually still very unhappy that he wasn't resuming his duties, that he acquiesced and he retook up the Episcopal office. <clears throat> During this time, it was kind of a tense piece. Um, and something else happened... The, emperor, the empress uh, was named Augusta. Now, this is something, um, as a bit of a background, just being the wife of the emperor did not make you Augusta. Getting that title was an honorary title, but it allowed your image to be put places publicly and, and adorned and whatnot. And so a statue, that silver statue of hers was erected, and they had a big festival. It was on a porphyry um, platform, and this festival was happening close to the church and it interrupted Mass. How do you think John viewed this? Well, instead of courteously asking for the celebration to be discontinued, he lost his temper, 
And then in a public address, he complained that these noisy entertainments were an insult to the church. The empress didn't view this kindly. Um, <clears throat> she then immediately said, we need to get rid of him. <laughs> she had a change of heart. She wanted to get rid of him. And now she wanted to get rid of him because he dared to resume his episcopal office without a proper synod overturning the previous thing. She conveniently forgot that she was the one who was trying to get him to come back in. Um, John preached the sermon about his namesake, John the Baptist, saying, Again, Herodias is enraged. Again, she dances. Again, she seeks to have John's head on a platter. Uh, yeah, he was pretty direct with his preaching. <laughs> people say, well, he wasn't really directing that at the Empress, but, you know, perception is reality. The people took it that way. The people said, well, come on. And word got back to the palace, and that was basically it. There was a complete rupture now in the relationship. But Arcadius was an indecisive man. He was a weak man, and he didn't know what to do. So they drummed up this old ruling, a canon from uh, a council, a synod in Antioch 341 that said specifically, a bishop who had been deposed by a synod, if he resumes his functions on his own responsibility without having first his sentence quashed by another synod, he was excluded from office henceforth without possibility of an appeal. So they thought, this is great. We don't even have to have another synod. We'll just use this canon to overturn it. But there was a problem with that council. That council was an Arian council. <laughs> it was a council, actually, that was that ruling came out against Athanasius because Athanasius had been exiled multiple times and the, these Arian bishops got together and said, you can't come back unless we have a proper synod inviting you back. And so this was never recognized by Innocent, for example. When they appealed to Innocent to kind of intervene, Innocent went, said to Theophilus, I'm in communion with you and I'm in communion with John. This, I don't recognize this synod. This is an Arian synod. You can't appeal to that canon. But at any rate, John was then uh, exiled a second time. This time he was exiled, go ahead, to um, Armenia Secunda. It's not even on here. It's such a small place, okay? He got exiled to a small uh, place there called the Caucasus. And along this path, there were raids being done by Isaurian barbarians. And he was a man of weak constitution. He was now in his 60s. And this was in the middle of summer. And he was facing all kinds of health problems along the way. Um, at one point, they actually had to um, leave the, the, uh, where they were staying and, and flee in the middle of night, 77 kilometers away, to a place called Arabasos, which was a frontier fortress town because of these attacks. And he was staying in a citadel, which he deemed to be worse than a dungeon. Um, <clears throat> eventually, um, Eudoxia died in another miscarriage. But this did not help John, because John was in correspondence with many people, especially with Innocent in Rome. And Innocent was trying to resolve the issue. Many refugees were coming from Constantinople now to Rome and pleading, you've got to fix things, because anybody who was pro-John was being kicked out themselves or had to flee. Okay, so Innocent's trying to sort of get this, but again, he didn't have papal authority to just come in there and impose anything. And when the Western Emperor uh, uh, Honorius came in and tried to intervene as well, the East, this rattled them. They were like, who are you to come into our territory and tell us what to do? And so this actually solidified opposition against John as opposed to helping him in many ways. And so John, um, he wrote uh, many letters during that period of time. And people were also starting to set this up as a... Um, as a pilgrimage. So Antioch, you can't quite see it here, but they were coming there to him. And then they were coming back telling rapturous stories of how awesome his preaching is. And I saw John, and, and this was really irritating people. So then they decided, okay, we're going to push him even further away. Next slide. Uh, oh, this is uh, innocent. Go ahead. Um, this is where they were going to move him, to the farthest reaches of the empire. Okay, so he is sitting right down, um, as I said, uh, near here. And they're going to force march him all the way over there. And I think that the idea was to kill him, but not kill him. You know, it's kind of like Uriah the Hittite, just back away and let nature take its course. These, they force marched him in the summer of 407, some 20 kilometers a day, okay, these Praetorian guards. And um, whenever they came to a center that had anything like bathhouses or places to rest, they just moved on, and they would stop at these one-horse towns, and John could not get proper rest or care. Um, 
as he was getting closer to their destination, they came near a, a shrine where it, there was a martyred bishop there, um, and his name was Basiliscos. Um, they, they, um, he had a vision that night, John did. <clears throat> and uh, the, the uh, saint came to him and said, Brother John, take heart, for we will soon be together. And then the priest at the shrine where, that, uh, where he was got a vision that night, and he said, you must prepare a place for my brother John, for he will be with us soon. So they both had visions. And then John woke up the next morning dead tired, begged his captors to let him rest a little bit longer, uh, but they had none of it, and they marched him another probably four or five kilometers until he just collapsed. And then they brought him back. They switched him, they dressed him into uh, um, white robes. He took his final communion, and his last words were apparently, glory be to God for everything. And then he died and was gathered to his fathers. After his death, um, his... uh, uh, Supporters were granted an amnesty, but that wasn't enough. They wanted him to be fully restored posthumously. And what they demanded is that his name be included among the diptychs, which was a written thing that, of a list of names, both people living and dead, in the Mass to honor them. And they wanted him to be included among the bishops. In other words, he was never really deposed. Well, this caused a huge stink. Innocent came in and said, that's a great idea. If you want to be in communion with me, you have to put him on your diptychs. Well, Alexandria didn't like this. At first they resisted. They were the last to capitulate. Eventually Antioch did. And then Alexandria, begrudgingly, Cyril, the nephew of Theophilus, wrote uh, to have that name of that dead man inscribed in the diptychs. (laughs) And then finally in January 438, the remains of John were brought to Constantinople with a magnificent ceremony. Theodosius II their son, met the reliquary, and when they came to the Bosphorus, he knelt down, pressed his head against it, and asked for forgiveness for the sins of his parents against John. Uh, John was interred, therefore, at Constantinople, but in the Fourth Crusade, 1204, uh, Venetians seized his uh, remains and took them back to St. Peter's. So his body is now at St. Peter's, but I think his head is making the rounds. If you go further... (laughs) (laughs) That's his head. And one more ahead. I wanted to just close with one little word from C.S. Lewis, because just to impress upon you, this is a book about Athanasius, actually. But C.S. Lewis wrote the foreword, and I just want to encourage you to read the fathers and to learn uh, more about these giants of the faith, both from their errors as well as, of course, uh, their great example, because they far outshine us. But I love how C.S. Lewis puts it, if I could just read this to close. Every age has its own outlook. It is especially good at seeing certain truths and especially liable to make certain mistakes. We all, therefore, need the books that will correct the characteristic mistakes of our own period. And that means the old books. All contemporary writers share to some extent the contemporary outlook, even those like myself who seem most opposed to it. Nothing strikes me more when I read the controversies of past ages than the fact that both sides were usually assuming, without question, a good deal, which we now absolutely deny. They thought that they were completely opposed as two sides could be, but in fact they were all the time secretly united, united with each other and against earlier and later ages. By a great mass of common assumptions, we may be sure that the characteristic blindnesses of the 20th century, the blindness about which posterity will ask, how could they believe that? (laughs) Um, Lies where we have never suspected it and concerns something about which which there is untroubled agreement between Hitler and uh, um, President Roosevelt or between Mr. H.G. Wells and Karl Barth. None of us can fully escape this blindness, but we shall certainly increase it and weaken our our guard against it if we read only modern books. Where they are true, they will give us truths, which we knew already. Where they are false, they will aggravate the error with which we are already dangerously ill. The only palliative is to keep the clean um, sea breeze of the centuries blowing through our minds, and this can be done only by reading old books. Not, of course, that there is any magical, magic about the past. People were no cleverer then than they are now. They are made many mistakes as we, but not the same mistakes. 
They will not flatter us with the errors that we are already committing, and with their own errors being now open and palpable, will not endanger us. Two heads are better than one, not because either is infallible, but because they are unlikely to go wrong in the same direction. To be sure, the books of the future would be just as good as corrective as the books of the past, but unfortunately, we cannot get at them. Thank you.